1: Hey, everyone. This is Joe Waters, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Cause Talk Radio. And on the line with me now is Megan Strand. Hey, Megan. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? How's the weather out in wherever you are? Oh, it's, getting,
0: it's getting Ickville again. This is what we do. We go nice and sunny, and then yeah. we get Ickville. And then finally in like August, it gets sunny again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's the same way here in Boston. But you know what okay. the good news is? Another episode of Cause Talk Radio. What? And more importantly, on the line, in all that rainy, uh, disastrous weather you're having, right, <laughs> there is a guy on the line here who is going to teach you to do more good better. Because that's the name of his, do- his book, Do More Good Better, using the power of decision clarity to mobilize the talent of your nonprofit team. And on the line is Steve Shire, who's the author of the book, but also CEO of Shire Plus Group. Hey, Steve, how's it going?
2: Hi, Joe. Hi, Megan. How are you, too?
1: We're doing great. You know, just living the life here. And, you know, you're out in the West Coast, and uh, that's where Center your office true. is. You, you folks are what, based in San Francisco?
2: In San Francisco and
1: Oakland, yes. Very good. You a baseball fan? I uh, love the Giants, absolutely. How can you not? Three World Series in the past five years. Congratulations, my friend.
2: We have a problem with that panda leaving, but, you know, he's now in Boston.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was true. That was true. I remember that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, hey, congratulations on your successes, and we were really excited um, to get this new book uh, that you have out. And I thought one of the interesting things is I told Megan that we had to have you on the show because in the introduction of this, uh, this book, someone wrote, To my amazement, Mr. Shia was the most objective clear, transparent, and fair tie wearer I'd ever met. And I said to Megan, I said, we have to talk to this guy. We've got to talk to this tie wearer. I mean, you know, I mean, who's a tie wearer these days, right?
2: (laughs) Well, I hate to break it to you, but I'm not wearing a tie today. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) But you know, take a minute. Tell us. Uh, first of all, you know what I really love to hear, Steve, and we're trying to do this more with our guests too. Is I'd love to hear a little bit about your your own background in the nonprofit field, and uh, and then to tell us a little bit about the book. Can you do that for us?
2: Sure, of course. Okay. And thanks again for having me on. No, I pleasure. Um, it's really it's really great to uh, be here with you. So, um, the book comes out of my experiences uh, in the nonprofit sector. For a year, I was uh, president of an organization called the Entrepreneur's Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that was a very difficult and challenging year. Uh, and then for three years plus, I was the uh, vice president of human resources at a national nonprofit called College Summit. Oh, yeah. Uh, college Summit uh, is um, got one goal in life, and that is to get low-income kids into college, and they work with school districts all over the country, and I think at last I heard about 50,000 young people a year. So College Summit's a wonderful organization, mm-hmm. and uh, as is the Entrepreneurs' Foundation for that matter, and uh, it's based on that, but it's also based, uh, Joe and Megan, on my experiences being a organizational leader and also a uh, vice president of human resources at a number of different technology organizations as well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's a little bit about
1: my nonprofit experience. Yep. And what do you, uh, tell us, Why? What, what was the impetus for the book? I mean, what is it one of those things that during your experience is like just one of those things you felt like you needed to share with people? And I mean, this is a significant book. I mean, Megan and I both really enjoyed uh, reading it, what we could anyways with the excerpts. And, but it was really interesting. Is this a book that you just felt like you had to write?
2: It's a book that I felt that was really important to write because um, my experience is dealing with nonprofit people and fortunately for me, College Summit uh, was a national nonprofit and I got to meet a lot of other people and a lot of other nonprofit organizations. I was always so impressed with the people I met, but I was always so aware of how they felt hamstrung about the decisions they could make and mm-hmm. what power they did or did not have. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people I was encountering Were people I thought were fantastic, but they were being underutilized. Mm -hmm. I say often when I meet and when I speak with people, I I meet so many people in the nonprofit in the nonprofit world who are fantastic, but I also unfortunately see a lot of people that are underutilized. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the number of hours they give to their efforts. They're all working very hard, but. Because we have a problem talking about power, Mm -hmm. because we have problems talking about who is actually making decisions, we're not as effective as we can be. Mm -hmm. And if we can only marshal our strength to have those conversations, we'll be able to drive decision-making down into organizations, create more focus, and really harness the capabilities of all of our people Mm -hmm. so that we'll be able to achieve more.
0: Mm. I think it's really interesting to me that you have come at this topic with the slice that you have, because, you know, you talk about people being fearful about talking about power and decision making. But I honestly think just after reading what I've read that a lot of it is really just not understanding that there's even a decision being made about, Mm. you know, who should be making decisions and who is in control of the decision. Um, It's just there's a lot of ambiguity, I think, in today's workplace and especially in the nonprofit field. And you point out in your book that, you know, everyone wants to be mission focused and a team player. But if you're not having those really objective conversations, I just think it really brings an interesting lens to the whole workplace dynamic. Um, And I'm interested to know, I guess, how, how did this kind of occur to you that Wow, people, I mean, maybe it was just always obvious to you. Wow, we are not being clear on who's making decisions. But I think for most yeah. of us, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is stinky. I don't like my workplace. And I, they don't, nobody lets me do anything. But it, it, I don't know. You just have a different degree of granularity to, to how you explain it.
2: Well, I think, well, thank you. Thanks very much. I think it is about really getting granular because people, as I pointed out in the book, people are afraid of conflict. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not to say that these conflicts don't happen, but there's a fear of conflict, there's a fear of rejection. Um, and people don't want to bring up these typical topics. The other ironic thing about the nonprofit sector is that people have no problem advocating for their clients Mm -hmm. and getting really adamant about how their clients need to be served, but they have great problems advocating for themselves. We saw this in some of the work we did um, last year. Um, We were meeting with an organization, and we were doing our work with them, And there was this one person who had a very senior job in the organization and her executive director was urging her to advocate for decisions. He wanted to push decision-making down in the organization and she was really hesitant to do it. And so Mm -hmm. we asked her, why are you hesitant to like advocate for these decisions? They really should be with you. Mm -hmm. And we know it's not because you don't care and we know it's not because you don't want to work hard. Why don't you want to do it? And she said to us – I just don't want to be perceived as being power hungry.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. We interesting. We are
2: so we are so um, hesitant mm-hmm. to uh, ask for power for ourselves mm-hmm. that um, our organizations don't work as effectively as they can. Do and you, uh, you know one of the. You know, oh, one sorry, of the things I was sorry. going
1: to ask, Steve, is like, do you think that's unique to nonprofits, though? I mean, do you think that's special with nonprofits is that people have that that role where they're much more sensitive about being perceived as power hungry than they are in the for-profit uh, sector?
2: I think it's more pronounced. I worked in the for-profit sector as well. I worked for nine years at Apple, and I worked uh, at several high-tech startups as a VP of HR and uh, there, there's decision-making confusion in these organizations as well. Mm-hmm. It's just that in those organizations, people do not feel as hamstrung to get into a conflict mm-hmm. uh, and try to resolve these questions. Right um, Now, they may not do it well. I'm not saying that people in the for-profit universe at all have the, the necessarily the, the right ideas about how to resolve conflict and how to talk about these issues. But they're not as hamstrung as the people in the nonprofit sector who have a great deal of difficulty appearing, as that woman I mentioned earlier uh, said, uh, they have a great deal of difficulty appearing to be power hungry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're afraid they'll they'll be looked down on. They're afraid they'll be perceived as being outside the group. They'll be perceived as putting their own needs ahead of the mission.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can really see, though, how that's holding an organization back. Right.
2: Right. And it does hold an organization back, and our whole purpose in doing this work is the people in nonprofit organizations are great. Mm -hmm. They just need a language and a process to talk about power and Mm decision-making, and they need to not feel ashamed of bringing these topics up.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you this. So you have a whole system called Decision Clarity that I don't know that we have time to completely get into today, but let me ask you this. If somebody's listening right now and they happen to work for a nonprofit organization and they feel kind of like you're explaining, like they feel like they're hamstrung, like they're not being used to the best of their ability, like they're not being given decision-making ability, is there like a Decision Clarity light that people can can do on their own? I mean, I know that's not ideal, but barring like an organizational Overhaul with how decision making is made. Like, do you have any tips for people? Yeah. Is it Steve? Is it
1: simple? Like, pick up a hole puncher and hit your boss over the head with it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, like, let me ask you: Is that
2: something
1: you've tried? He he probably has. (laughs) Has that
2: worked for you?
1: (laughs) I've been hit by a few. Oh, You've
0: been hit by a few. Okay. That explains a lot.
2: Version of the book. Um, You know, obviously, um, we put, just to be clear, we put all of our methodology, uh, except our technology, obviously, but we have, we put all of our methodology in the book. So we're not going to let people hang. Mm -hmm. They learn everything. They'll learn our point of view about decision clarity by reading the book, and they'll learn our method. Okay, mm-hmm. but you know, while we're on the radio, uh, let me say there's a couple things that people can do. Uh, they can certainly go to our, our website uh, at shiregroup.com, and they can look on our blog postings, and there's plenty of information there. Um, but the book was really created so that people there's a million and a half nonprofits in the in the U.S., and I'm not going to get to all of them. Right, and a lot of them are small and. Um, It would benefit for them, it would benefit them to have access to this insight. But Megan, you asked an important question, so let me now get to it, which is being, decision clarity is about, there's four phases to decision clarity. First of all, there's inventorying decisions. Mm -hmm. People think about plans, they think about projects, but they don't break down in a granular fashion, okay, what are the decisions I really have to make? So that's the first thing we do. We make the organization go through a process where they inventory all the major decisions before them. Then they prioritize those decisions because people will often spend a lot of time on decisions that are not that important. Right. And we want people to focus on the important decisions in their environment. And then we, the the magic thing, and I think the part which separates us from all other decision-making models, and if you Google decision-making models – You'll see a ton of them, but what what separates us from other people is we teach people how to advocate for Mm decision-making. We give them language and coaching, which makes it easier for them to say, this is a decision that affects my job, and I'd like to advocate for to make that decision. Mm -hmm. So teaching people how to advocate, again, it's one of those great ironies. They have no problem advocating for their clients. They have significant challenge, generally advocating for themselves. And then finally, communicating. Lots of times decisions get made in organizations and nobody ever knows. Did it ever happen to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, and so it's really important that you communicate the decisions that you make. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, our model and the, the roles that they are advocating for. There's a decision maker role. There's an expert advisor role. There's a contributor role. There's an informed role and there's a driver role. And so they're, uh, they're advocating for those roles. And at the end of the day, the organization, for the first time in its history, gets a list of all the major decisions mm-hmm. that they have to make. And they know who's responsible for each decision. Mm-hmm. They've never had that before. Mm-hmm. And these are people who have advocated for, so what typically happens is you go from, Three or four people making all the decisions in the organizations to 20, 25 people, but the difference is the executive director knows who's doing what right. and right. knows what he or she can concentrate on.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. Hey, um, Steve, I'm actually thinking about applying this to my marriage. What do you think? <laughs> you know, funny you funny know you I, I'm going to sit my I, wife that, down. You don't get <laughs> any decisions. What are you talking <laughs> about? I'm going to sit down my w- wife tonight and i be like, No, I want to talk to you about decision clarity.
2: Well, yeah. I, I am telling you that that is like a book I thought about doing because Absolutely. how often – there's a great cartoon uh, that was in um, The New Yorker mm-hmm. a couple of uh, years ago, which I have, and – uh it basically is a woman standing in a doorway, and the man is working at his computer, and she says to him, would you like to talk to me about the decision I've already made?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that must have been my wife. <laughs> uh, it could have been. So, it, could have, it could have
2: been. So, yes, this is another area where people don't talk it's, – it's assumed that we make decisions – uh, consensually or or jointly in mm-hmm. marriages, but that's not really how it really works. Yeah, right. I that's, mean, yeah. if you look really subtly at what people are doing, one person is emerging and making the decision more often than not,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, but we don't feel empowered to really say, you know, I'd like to make that decision. We don't have that language. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to clarify, too, because, you know, asking people to make decisions can also feel intimidating. But I think through your book, it's pretty obvious that you're not making a decision in a vacuum. It's not just I I get to make the decision and that's it. Nobody else gets a say in any of this. And I don't have to talk to anybody about anything. I mean, it's actually quite the opposite that you have a structure in place where you say, you know, here are the people you need to consult. Here are the people that would be your lead advisor or whatever it is. Well, you know what I felt
1: is uh, Stephen Megan after reading the book too and looking at it is that I felt empowered to make decisions. Like I I was like, wow, I could Look really, out yeah, way. I could really go in, in you know, and make some decisions. And you know, I I spent twenty years in the nonprofit field before you know I started my own business, so it's not as much of a concern for me now. But I definitely got some great tactics out of it in steps, Steve, about how to proceed well, with decisions. You, yeah, instead of b- being kind of unilateral, which I think is kind of you know the temptation, right. you know, is you know, it, oh, I need it, to make a exactly. decision here, you know, and it's like, how about make a better decision, uh, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I could. See the value. Here's the question I have for you, though, Steve. Uh, mm-hmm. Megan and I uh, and many of our listeners are what we call cause marketers, and cause marketers look at nonprofit and for-profit partnerships, and they put together win-win programs that raise money and change the world, as Megan and I like to discover. A lot of times we're dealing with, or our listeners are dealing with, decision makers that are really struggling with whether or not they should be doing this type of work because it is kind of new or it's out there or what have you. As an expert in this, Steve, would you have any advice for those people about how they should proceed with someone on a decision about cause marketing if it's a fairly new idea for them or maybe even one that they may be mildly opposed to already?
2: Sure. I think the important thing is to get granular about what you want this person to do Mm -hmm. and to be clear with them about how they're going to benefit. I mean, I read your stuff earlier, Joe, and uh, it's very clear that both parties have to benefit. That's right. uh, What I see all the time is that people are afraid to ask for what they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you can... Find it in yourself to say, this is what I'd like you to do, and this is the benefit you're going to get, and this is the benefit that I'm going to get. If you can say those three things, then you're more likely to get people moving in your direction.
1: Yeah. No, Lots that... of
2: times people are afraid to say what they want. Yep and it becomes very confusing, and it
1: doesn't help anyone. Yeah, and I like your approach too, and I think so often with cause marketing is that you really have to take baby steps with it and get uh, people agreeing in certain steps, like, well, the first thing we're going to do this is we're going to do an inventory of our businesses. We'll do an asset analysis of all the people we work for to determine if there are some good people within our uh, organizational structure that we could work with on a cause marketing program. Then, if we do that, this is the next step, and then, you know, you can kind of proceed accordingly
2: yeah exactly so much what I was trying to get out of myself and put into the book was the idea that if people could only find the personal bravery to be clear about what they want Mm -hmm. and they but you see it's not even just simply a matter of personal bravery that's important but it's also creating structures and environments where people are willing to listen to other people yeah and that's really the important, I mean, you can't, it's difficult to do, there are certainly tips and ideas uh, in the book that individuals, even if they didn't engage their larger universe, mm-hmm. uh, could benefit from, but at the end of the day, we work in organizations, and bar, largely, and we have to be clear about what these organizations are going to do, and what, you know, we can do. One of the issues that's certainly in the papers, and in the newspaper, and in the TV, and everywhere, is you know, questions about bias and, you know, we have bias uh, We're human beings are sorting machines and we bring to our lives tons of implicit bias. Mm-hmm. And one of the places we have bias is about who should be making decisions in our organizations. Mm-hmm. I've seen this lots of times. Well, sure, um, you can make decisions if you went to Yale, um, if you uh, came through the same consulting company, if you, but it's it's not helpful to have those biases. Mm-hmm. And these biases are not mean spirited more more often than not. They're just people have implicit bias about who should be making decisions in our organizations. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is we have a lot of great people on nonprofit organizations and we need and our nonprofits would be so much better off if we used all of their talent and skill mm-hmm. to help make decisions. Right. Uh, decision making should not be resident. In the same group of people, it should be dropped down into the organization Mm -hmm. and that's a way of retaining people, attracting people to your organization, and making sure you have an environment that really works.
1: But you have to let go of those preconceived notions that we have, right? Those bias that we have about, you know, like, oh, you know, maybe Jim can't do that or Jim's never done that before, so maybe we shouldn't be, you know, thinking that he can now or, you know, something like that. And, you know, we have to empower people, right? If we really, you know, yeah.
2: But empowerment empowerment is a a very good term, Joe, and it's a very heartfelt term. But empowerment without the ability to make decisions Mm -hmm. is pretty worthless.
1: No, it's powerless. It's
2: powerless. In fact, more people talk about empowerment when they're not willing to make changes to how decisions get made, as you said, Mm -hmm. people become less empowered. They become powerless. Yep.
1: Exactly. Now, you have given me the courage, Steve, to stand up to Megan. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, Joe, I don't know if that's uh, the only. I think well, Megan needs courage to stand up to you that's as right. well. That's right. Well, you know, that's sometimes,
1: right. sometimes I think Steve, just because she's not within the 128 belt here in Boston, that you know, she, she just can't do it. You know, it's implicit bias. That, that's right. Right you know, here, people, I think but,
2: that's implicit bias, Joe. That's I right. Think, <laughs> that's right. I you have know, the to. one thing I would, the, the one thing I would say, uh, you know, all joking aside, we mm. are joking, and I love that we're joking, yep. is that. When you really give people the opportunity to advocate, it is astounding what they're willing to do. So many organizations are faced with, I can't get my organization to move forward. I can't engage my people. Well, how about try something different? How about actually giving them real authority, and you'll be amazed what actually happens.
1: And you know what I see too so often, Steve, is, is because I do a lot of uh, consulting for companies and nonprofits, is I go in there, and there is a CEO or senior management team that is extremely stressed out because they're making all the decisions all the time. Right. And you exactly. realize that you have this whole, in many cases, a very capable staff under you that can make a lot of these decisions, but you just don't want to let them do it.
2: Exactly. And you know, we tend to in this world divide people into strategists and implementers and you know, it's we're really short changing ourselves. If we would only allow people to advocate, they will amaze us Mm -hmm. with what they're willing to take on.
1: Yep. No, I agree.
0: Excellent. Well, this is a fantastic read. We'll definitely put links to all that we've talked about today in the show notes. And I, at least personally, would highly recommend this book for really anyone, whether you work for a nonprofit or not, because really a lot of good stuff in here, particularly about the self-advocacy. That's, as Joe mentioned, it's something you can use in your other relationships, not just in your job. So absolutely do more good, Better. Yeah, you know one and, of the things
1: I would too make, uh, mention about this too, uh, yes. Megan, is Steve, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Plotter and some of the things that he's written about the nonprofit sector, but I would put your, uh, your book clearly on his bookshelf of disruptive ideas uh, for the nonprofit sector and things that should Ooh, be adopted for us to be much. more effective. So you, you're in good company.
2: You guys are great and uh, if you need me to uh, come out and mediate any disputes you have, I all means <laughs> please <let> me
1: know. <laughs> hey Steve, Steve, where can where people, people yeah, where can you? people find you?
2: Uh they can find me at on uh, Twitter at, at Shire Group uh, and um or they can email me at Steve at shiregroup.com. dot com. It's S C H E I E R. Yep. And um thank you so very much.
1: No, thank Excellent. you. Joe, where can people find you online? Uh, People can find me on Twitter at Joe Waters. Uh, They can find me, of course, at SelfishGiving.com. And be sure to check out all my cause marketing pins at Pinterest.com slash Joe Waters. What about you, Megan? Where can people find you?
0: I'm also on Twitter at Megan Strand and I tweet for the cause marketing forum at tweetCMF. and you can find show notes for this show at selfishgiving.com as well as causeupdate.com and we do recommend you subscribe to the podcast cause talk radio on iTunes so you don't miss an episode and on behalf of Joe and Steve and myself we'd like to thank you so so much for tuning in today and we'll talk to you next time.